Hello and welcome to the VSC podcast. Here we sit down with professionals who serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who have experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. My name is Hannah Jennerine, and I am the Education and Prevention Coordinator at the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. In this podcast, we discuss sensitive topics such as violence and sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. For the Florida State Sexual Helpline, call 888-956-7273. And by contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There is always someone ready to help. In today's episode, I have with me Sally Leslie, who is a survivor of LGBTQ plus narcissistic abuse. Sally is also the host of her very own podcast. This is called Reclaiming Pride LGBT plus Survivors of Narcissistic Abuse. And if you're interested, you can find her podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. She's here to help us understand what narcissistic abuse is and share her experiences as well. So without further ado, Sally, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for thank you for having me, Hannah. Um, thank you so much. Of course. Can you share a little bit about the work that you do and why you're so passionate about the subject? Sure. Um, so by trade, I'm actually an English and drama teacher. Um, and I've been teaching since 1997. I taught in London. Then I taught in New York City for 16 years and now in Orlando. Um, so I've always been a very passionate educator. Uh, and I've always found my retreat and my home in education. So I came from a very hard place in childhood. Um, and when I got out, as I like to call it, um, I was the first in my family to go to university. And thank education, you. right, education <laughs> is, thank you. Um, education's always been my retreat. Um, and so I I basically, I taught all the way through uh, that 13-year abusive relationship. And mm. I think a part of me always knew that if I would ever get out alive, then I would want to teach about this. I would want the world to know, you know, how they can avoid it. Um, And so educating again, that's really how I came to it. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. So to start, could you please, if you're comfortable, share with us your personal journey as an LGBTQ plus survivor of narcissistic abuse and what led you to the path of healing and self-discovery? This is a loaded question, so please take your time. (laughs) So yeah, it it is. And I, um, I'll let everybody know, I wrote some notes before we started here. And really what I've done is I chose to kind of start from the beginning, if that makes sense, because it's kind of like my life journey to this point, because everything feeds off everything else. So um, I know I was gay from about the age of 14. Um, I had a crush on my music teacher. It's very KD Lang of me. Um, I was never really in a place to come out to either of my parents because they were really kind of dealing with their own horrors and their own demons and each other. Um, And I always was putting myself last in order to support my mum, who was a chronic alcoholic all the way through my childhood and up until my early 30s, actually. Um, There was a lot of violence in the home, uh, self-harm, suicide attempts from my mum. Um, I would come home and I'd have to call ambulances, call police. I frequently got in the middle of physical fights with my parents. Um, I'd go to school with bruises and teachers would would question it, but never really did anything about it. And I think this was, I mean, we're talking about South London in the late 1970s, early 1980s. So I'm not really sure what the, uh, uh, what all the precepts around that were at that time. Um, but I remember my mum coming to pick me up from school when I'd not been well once and she had a black eye. Um, And I remember the principal saying to her, you know, oh, you poor woman um, who did this. And she said, my husband Um, and nothing happened. Um, Nothing was done. Um, I had a low self-esteem. I had low self-worth. Eventually, um, like I say, I knew I was gay from about the age of 14, but I actually married a man and I tried to live the straight life um, because I thought, you know, I had no esteem. I had no sense of identity around being LGBT at that time and no support. Um, incidentally, though, that he's he's a really good guy. We're still good friends today. Um, but he, he knows. Um, so now. Um, but in 2001, I met a woman online before it was fashionable to meet people online, actually. 
Um, and that was my escape. I moved to New York City in 2001. Um, and, you know, as we all know, your past follows you. Um, you you can't just run away from it. Um, so that lady, she was in the army and she was deployed to Iraq. Um, she came back with PTSD. There were a few affairs that happened and things like that. Um, and we split up and that eventually led me to the LGBT plus center on West 13th street in New York city. Um, and a friend of mine had said, Hey, you know, I think maybe you need to just talk to some like-minded people and you need healing. So there's this meeting I know about and it's ACOA. Mm -hmm. So if folks don't know what that is, that's adult children of alcoholics. So I went to those circles and it was amazing. Um, and then one day in walked, uh, in walked my ex. Um, and that's the first time I saw her and, you know, we started to talk and then, you know, we, we started going out and slowly I started to realize that there was something very wrong. Um, but I was in love. So I, I excused it all. Like a friend of mine always says, like, you know, when you're in love, all bets are off kind of thing. Oh yeah. Um, right. It, <laughs> It, oh, yeah. well, it, it you, lasted. Think, you don't think logically no. no no you really don't and and you know like exactly Hannah like you know logically exactly what's happening like I'd grown up in a situation a part of your intuition that feels it as well but it's just like you kind of ignore it you, you ignore the red flags because you think oh my gosh like maybe I'm overthinking this maybe this is what's good for me and I don't even know because I never had it before I get it I understand right. <laughs> exactly yes no you're absolutely right so you're like Maybe I just don't know this person very well. Maybe I'm just learning them. Maybe this is what they're like. Hey, come on. You haven't had that much experience. You were married to a guy and, and things like that. You know what I mean? And so I was like, I was excusing so much. But then the logical part of me who'd grown up in an abusive household knew there was something really, really off. Um, and that lasted for 13 years. Um, it Soon before it ended, I was diagnosed with cancer and the relationship ended as much of it had been in silence. Mm. Um, honestly, I still have dreams and night terrors about her. Um, when she left, I had no furniture and she'd left me with $17,000 worth of debt. Yeah. Um, yeah, I ended up um, reconnecting with friends that she'd isolated me from though. Um, and they really did help me. Um, I began to tell my story to them and I found it very freeing. Um, I, I remember doing this when I was 16 and I remember telling a friend of mine at college that my mum was an alcoholic and that was the first time I'd ever told anyone. Mm -hmm. um, and it felt the same, you know, it felt the same. And, and again, I realized at that time that time had repeated itself and I'd been living a secret all over again, you know, which is often what happens to folks who've come right. from hard places. Thank you so um, much for, you know, sharing this as well. And, you know, your experiences and 13 years is a very, very long time oh, to yeah. endure the abuse, you know, and we're going to talk about this as we continue on. But as you know, abuse is not isolated. Someone who's being physically abused is also being abused emotionally, ver verbally. You know, you said the isolation aspect of it. That's a huge one. And I do yeah. want you to, you know, further elaborate on that as we continue on. But I'm just so grateful for you as a survivor to be here in this space and share this space with me today because we, we hear a lot about narcissistic abuse when it comes to heterosexual relationships. But within the LGBTQ plus community, it's very rare that we have survivors who are willing, as you are, to come forward and to share their experience. So Sally, I just know that I appreciate like sharing this space with you and I have so much respect and I admire you for even doing this. So well, thank you. Well, thank you, you know, and, and I'm thankful that you've invited me because I think the more the more LGBT folks that can hear this, the better. Um, and like I said, I knew if I'd ever got my life back um, that I would want to educate people in some way. I am writing a book, but I Ooh. I knew that the podcast would be a faster way to reach people. So that's what I did. And when you do write that book, just know that you are more than welcome to come back on so we can help promote that. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Not that as well. Of course. So Sally, I know you shared more about your experiences, you know, within this relationship. What was that point when you realized this is not healthy for me anymore? This is not something that I want to do. So Sally, what unique challenges did you face as an LGBTQ plus individual while navigating the experiences of narcissistic abuse? And how did it impact your sense of identity and self-worth? So um, 
I think when you're LGBT plus, it can be hard enough at work, for example, to talk about your relationships like, oh, what did you do this weekend can be so easy um, for heterosexual people. But if you're in an environment where you're not out or you don't want to be or you can't, um, then even a simple question like, what did you do this weekend? is going to be difficult. Do you lie? Do you not say anything? Like, what do you do? Um, And so I think to talk about if if you can talk about your relationship and it's less than perfect, that can be a problem. I think there's a lot of pressure on LGBT plus people to have good, sustained relationships because we're kind of representing the whole of the community. Right. right? And I think this tends to happen to a lot of marginalized people. Like that if you're less than perfect, that must mean that you're all dysfunctional then. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the pressure I feel like is on. Um, for you to be brave enough to be out, especially in Florida, um, but to have a nice and, and comfortable sounding relationship for those that you're coming out to. Right. Um, so I talk on the podcast about being in bookshops for hours and in self-help sections, um, reading about emotional abuse when I was with her, BPD, NPD, um, listening to other podcasts on the topic also. But while this was all extremely helpful to me, Um, to identify what was happening and the pathologies that were happening, which, you know, cut across any kind of identity, the pathology is what it is. None of it mirrored my situation. None of it mirrored my relationship. And there are thousands of LGBT plus folks who are in toxic relationships who I'm sure, and actually the ones I've spoken to have told me they've been in the same situation. So when you listen to stuff, it's all ladies, this is what your man does, Um, you know, the way he talks to you or oh, look at the straight couple at the gender reveal with the narcissistic mother-in-law who ruins it. Um, You know, what male narcissists do to their wives and X, Y, Z, those kinds of things. So you're constantly like having a code switch um, and and just cut through to the pathology, but you're never represented. Um, Honestly, it was literally like being invalidated all over again, to be honest. Um, So first you're invalidated at home with your abusive partner or family member, And then you're invalidated when you seek help. It's like you're invisible, but you just have to keep taking it because you need the help. Um, So the, for me, as you know, that, so this went on for 13 years for me. And to the second part of your question, did it affect my identity? It didn't really affect my identity as an LGBT person, but it did strip away my personality, my friendships, a lot of my memories, because my stress levels were so high. I kind of couldn't keep a thought in my head for long. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad I'm a writer because I wrote down a lot of my childhood memories in order to write the book and I can't remember them anymore because it literally damaged my hippocampus. Like it's literally damaged my brain. Um, a lot of my memories have disappeared. She literally stole my life from me. Um, I, I really, and and some people might identify with this. I hated who I was when I was in her company. And if that makes any sense, like I would turn into this kind of simpering, emotionally battered, flinching person mm. who was treated like an imbecile, both by her and and her kind of flying monkeys, like the people that she would commandeer to be on her side, you know, but I, I really hated who I was when I was around her. Wow. Just to, you know, further the discussion on that and in your relationship with this person, Could you describe some of the key tactics or uh, behaviors that your abuser used and how did they manipulate or exploit your vulnerabilities as an LGBT plus person? You know, you just shared that you hate it. You hated who you were when you were around her. You said Mm -hmm. that she basically took your life. She took your memories to the point where even now, as you're writing your book, you can't remember them. Even though you wrote them down, you can't remember them. Could you elaborate more on that? Sure. Yeah. Um. Okay, so it it starts relatively slowly um, at the beginning of a relationship with somebody like this. So what's very common, and I talk about this in the podcast a lot, is that they usually start with what they what's called the love bombing stage. So if you know anything about this kind of toxic relationship, right? So (laughs) that's what keeps you there. That's what keeps you there is if it was always 100 percent bad. Yeah, it's the fact. Yeah. And that should automatically be a red flag because if someone wants to be with you for the rest of your life or their life, they're going to want to take the time to get to know you. There's not going to be talking about marriage within the first week or, you yes, know, yes. love bombing you and telling you, I lo- that telling somebody I love you within the first two weeks, like 
those are red flags but please continue on <laughs> oh no I, absolutely and you're absolutely right um it was slightly different for me though because actually you know and people are going to be like I I you know you know um I was actually the pursuer um, I was the one that was attracted to her so it took her a little while before that began okay. um but once it did I think if we were going to go chronologically like I said I think the first tactics that she employed were the silent treatment and also being very judgy um so I remember one of the first times I actually had a conversation with her. She'd been coming to these ACOA meetings and sitting in the circle and just silent. Mm. She wouldn't share. You know, you have the option in those situations to share right. or not. She would sit there silently and she did this for weeks. And of course, she was completely inaccessible. And being a traumatized person, I was attracted to that immediately. You know, I, I realized I was now. And um you know, it didn't help that she was also physically attracted, you know, all of the, all the things like, you know what I mean? Um, and I thought, oh, wow, that's really nice. You know, she must be just listening to people, hearing them. And she wasn't because one of the first times we spoke on the phone, she told me that in her mind, she had given everybody a nickname in the circle and mine was guilt girl. Um, yeah. So she was basically going there to like, I guess, in a sense, judge people and prey upon their weaknesses and their yes. vulnerabilities. So her yes. calling you guilt girl was her basically saying that, okay, Sally is someone who feels extreme guilt. This is my way in to prey upon that. Yes. I'm mind blown right now. Oh my gosh. Yes. I didn't know any of that at the time. Any yeah. of that. Now it's like, it's like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Shutter Island or any movies like that, where at the end you look at it and you're like, oh, that's oh, what happened. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's like that or like Sixth yeah. Sense or something. Oh, he's dead the whole time. I'm sorry to everyone who hasn't seen that movie already. So. Spoiler, spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, for the 25-year-old movie. Um, so I think, yeah, so the first one was a silence and judgment. And then so she would go silent on me for days, sometimes weeks. Um, so this was, yeah, yeah, this was heartbreaking. And it was re-traumatizing because I'd been emotionally abandoned time and time again as a child. And had never really been there for myself. And now there's someone who I'm actually finally very attracted to. And this is what I, what starts to happen. Did you know that you were abandoned from a very young yes. age? Oh, cause you, yes. you, okay. Okay. Yeah. She knew that and her, um, uh, her father was an alcoholic as well. Okay. Um, and there was a lot of violence at home when she was growing up too. Okay. Um, and she had, she had stuff happen to her as well in her childhood. She, she did not have, um, a, a great a great childhood either um she not that this makes any difference necessarily but she grew up in the Bronx um she grew up in a really hard place um so we we kind of had that in common in a way and we're right. both teachers like we had a lot Bonded in common, over the like, shared, you know shared similarities right okay oh yeah yeah we, we we certainly did um but then I guess after the silence she started to move into fear um so I remember the first violent episode like it was yesterday, and I write about it right at the beginning of my book. Um, we were in her car, and it was kind of a bright, crisp New York fall day, um, and she'd asked what I wanted to do that day, and all I said was, I'm not sure. Uh, she went nuts. Um, it was an SUV, and it was literally rocking about. Um, she was grabbing me by the hair, slamming my face into the flip-down mirror, you know, saying, look at yourself, you know, you're miserable and I won't curse, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. uh, screaming, slamming the dashboard, the steering wheel. Like I'd never been in a situation like this before myself. Like I'd seen this happen with my parents, right. um, but I'd never been trapped in a, a violent situation like this with someone. And I was literally scared stiff, as they say, I couldn't move. Yeah. I was in shock. Oh. Like I was hyperventilating. Yeah. My heart was like, it was, it was uh, that I remember that. And that was the start of it. So I remember the thing with her, and this is often a trait with, with people with person these kinds of personality disorders that are based on abuse is that once they've opened a door and crossed that boundary, they'll step it up and step it up until they can, you know, and they'll, they just keep going as far as they can. They'll keep pushing. Um, so that was the first time. And it just got worse every time after that. Um, she cut me off from my friends, um, who I eventually lost touch with. Um, she tried to cut me off from my mom, um, but that never really worked. But it did affect our relationship, though. Um, she abused me financially. So she made me write down everything that I would spend, even if it was on a bag of chips. Um, and I still have that book. I have it in my garage. 
Um, she made me leave my own debit card on the table by the door and I had to ask permission to use it. Um, meanwhile, she couldn't hold down a job, which is also pretty common with these folks. And I was supporting her. I am um, such shock right now. Like I know <laughs> audio for those of you listening, but my mouth is literally wide open right now. Yeah, it's and you don't I mean by this point, I, I'm I'm a few years in at this point. I'm like a couple of years in and it's already, you know, too late. Um, we're living together, all of those kinds of things. Um I literally was taking cans of beans to work. Um, and meanwhile, I was on an executive leadership team at the college. So I had an office overlooking Madison Avenue. I was on Madison and 34th Street, a block away from the Empire State Building, and I was eating out of a can of beans just to give you kind of perspective. So what I'm saying is there are people out there who have, no matter what, you know, there are people of all walks of life who have this happen. Um, you know, you're in offices with people from New York State Education Department, and I've been dragged around a hallway that morning. You know what I mean? It, it's not, you can never know. You never know um, what someone's living with um, until you get to know them. Um, mm -hmm. She'd love to upset me uh, so, so that she could feed off my reaction, which is something that you'd mentioned earlier on, you know, about the circle. Oh, she was literally feeding off people. Yes, uh, she was. You're absolutely right. Um, you could literally see her doing it. It, it was obvious. Um, she was also a huge projector. That's another uh, tactic that, that she used. So she would project a lot of her, what was going on with her. So if she was doing or thinking something, um, it would be me that she would accuse of doing or thinking that thing, um, whatever it was. And it's it's super obvious that she was doing that. And what used to really just, I didn't even know the word for it, but she was a highly intelligent person. And yet she and would do this. that's how a lot of these perpetrators are. They're yeah. very intelligent. They have the ability. It's, it's they understand human psychology. Yes. That's, I think that's what it is. And I don't know if like they study this or if it's already like within them that they like can perceive it. I I don't know, but it's, it's very interesting that you say that because in a lot of abusive relationships, perpetrators is abusers. They're very intelligent. They are, yes. so, they're very, very smart yet. They can't keep a job nope. yet. They can't maintain healthy relationships yet. They need one person because in actuality, the survivor of this relationship, they feel like they depend on the abuser, right? They feel like, oh my gosh, I'm sure during this relationship, you felt like, okay, I derive my self-worth from this woman. When she would tell me something nice or sweet, I yes. felt good about it. When she questioned me, made me question my sanity or made me question my opinions or my likes and dislikes, that's when I started questioning myself. It gets to the point where you idolized her right? Yes, I think yes. a lot of these relationships, uh, all of them, maybe when it comes to abusers, that's what they do. They feed off of that. And yes, they're very intelligent. Oh yeah, for sure. No, absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right. You know, you're really spot on with the, you know, she would tell me something was good, then it was good. If she would tell me something was bad, it was bad. You know, if, if, if she would tell me I was ugly, I was ugly. If she would yeah. tell me I look great, I look great. You know, <laughs> nothing yeah. was questioned. Yes. There was, that was, that yeah. was just what it was. So yeah. what were the initial steps you took to regain your self-esteem and self-confidence after escaping the abusive relationship? Like, what was the moment when you were in this relationship, you know, after the 13 years, what made you think, this is not it? This is not something I want to do. Like, what do I need to do to get out of this? And how do I regain my self-esteem? So I think um, the first things I did was I took back... I so it's always been really important to me uh, probably ever since childhood when my space was invaded constantly mm. um, to take back my space. That's always been very important to me. I don't know if it's so important to everyone, but I think it's a good place to start. Mm. Um, if it's a room that you live in, if it's an apartment you live in, if even if it's a house you live in, try and reclaim that space somehow little by little, like curate your own world. You know, how do you want your space to look? Because you've given that up. Um, over such a long period of time. Um, so I think the first things I did was I took out my journals. So I'd mentioned that I kept journals all the way through. Um, some of them in Queens, um, when I lived in New York, I'd thrown down the garbage chute because I was afraid that she was going to find them. Um, but most of them lived in a small cardboard box that traveled around jobs with me from one college to another 
in from New York to Orlando. And then they ended up in the back of my car. Um, but they never came in the house. Um, I think the one time I did bring a journal in the house, it was after we'd had a, a massive fight and I'd written, I'd written my way out of it um, in the journal because I had no one to talk to. Mm-hmm. And uh, she found it. And of course she read it. So that was the one time I, I brought a journal in the house and that was, that was awful. Wow. Um, so yeah, bringing the journals in and making a shelf for them and putting them right there. And I stand there right there and I look at them every day and, and okay. every time. Yeah. It's really helpful too. Cause every time you might feel like you miss the person, I look at them. Um, yeah, that yeah. helps you remember the experience and what they did. Yes. 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 I look at that and I'm like, that's where you were look at where you are now. Um, and and they're very helpful. Right. Yes. And I think, I think that's such a key point right there. The journals like that is, that's helped you. I'm also a journal person as well. So I like to write down, you know, where I was during this period of time with this person, what was my headspace like? Because the truth is when you're leaving this abusive relationship, remember you were going through these highs and these lows, a sense of dopamine. That's what you're feeling when you were with them. So now when you've, you know, completely separated yourself from that source that was giving you that dopamine it's kind of like you want to relapse because in a sense they were a drug to you so you have to without you know those journals in this in this case you probably would have gone back because you would have thought well you know what really happens like was it really that bad you would have started Mm -hmm. questioning yourself and then going back to them and then entering this like trauma bonded cycle where you get the highs and the lows you leave but then they draw you back in but I love how your journals was your sense of power and is your sense of power in this case so thank you for sharing that of course yeah thank you too and I'm glad you're a journaler it's a great thing um it's so helpful it really is it really is. And I do, I do at the end of each podcast, I do a journal entry prompt as well. So if someone wants to kind of stay on after the break, there's a journal entry prompt. I'd all kinds of, th- I've taught courses on journaling and things like that. So there's a, some of them, I do something called non-dominant hand journaling, which can kind of slow down your thought process because you're writing with your non-dominant hand. Um, but also it takes you back to a childlike place of how it felt as you were learning how to write. So coming out of a toxic situation or any kind of situation that you want to move on from, non-dominant hand journaling can be at first quite frustrating because it won't go as fast as you right, want it to. Right. Um, but but what happens is though that in that space, you're allowing thoughts to come which probably wouldn't have because you would have rushed past them. Um, so I do some non-dominant hand journaling in there as well. So that that's that's also in there too, because it's something that I that helped me. So I just wanted to share it. Um, with, with I love people. that. I'm gonna have to look into this non-dominant hand journaling. Yeah, oh yeah. Like, even if you just Google it, um, you know they have great articles on all the things that it can do. Um, you know, besides make you better writer with your non-dominant hand, but right. um, <laughs> it, it really helps you psychologically as well. It taps into something um, that, I, that's I very fundamental. Thank you for sharing that. That's so cool. Of course, <laughs> of course. Um, so I think another thing that I did was I put pictures up on the walls, my own pictures. I started to take pictures of where I travel, put pictures up with my friends, um, you know, uh, all of that kind of stuff that just take back your space. You know, it was all part of that. Um, I got back in touch with my friends and I told them everything. They didn't know. Um, so I I'm told gonna, them everything. I'm going to like give you a round of applause for that one because that's a big one. It, was, know, it really was. What actually is happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember one particular friend of mine. And when she listens to this, she's going to know who she is. She just sat there with her hands over her mouth. Like, 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 like what? what? This what? is happening this entire time. And you just. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, she knew it was she knew that my ex was was bad, but she never knew that it was a lot of the stuff bad. that was happening. Yeah. 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 Um, and I guess after about a year after the relationship ended, I decided I'd go to back to London where I'm from. Um, for the first time since my mum had passed away in 2020 and for the first time as a single person in 13 years. So we, my ex and I had been to London a number of times and, you know, she'd always found a way to just make it very tense and kind of ruin it and yelling at me in the street and stuff like that. So it was my time to take back my space, you know, which is where I'm from. Um, So I did it and it was a life changing journey it really was I literally took it back for myself I even went to the street where my grandmother grew up I I went to all kinds of places that I went to see my mom's grave obviously you know um 
all kinds of places that meant a lot to me. Um, it was sad though, too, because my mom wasn't there to share it with. She never saw me get out of that relationship. Um, so, but I, I reclaimed myself at home at work. Um, and now I just want to share all of this with folks who either are or were where I was. So people who need to hear about their relationships that are not great, but the mirror their own and people who need help when there's nothing out there for them. I w- just wanted to try and be that resource for LGBT plus people. It's not that, you know, you can't listen to my podcast as a straight person or anything like that and not get anything out of it. The pathologies are exactly the same. I have a lot of straight listeners and they listen all the time. Um, It's just that when I talk about my relationship, it mirrors an LGBT relationship. It's not, you know, my husband or my ex-boyfriend or anything like that. It, it, not that there's anything wrong with any of that. I'm just saying that there's nothing out there that mirrors what we have. Um, and so that's just what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And you're being that voice for the community as well, which is which is extremely powerful. So, Sally, I know that you shared previously and in you know the past questions that your abuser isolated you. Right. And you just shared about, you know, your friends. They knew that she was a bad person, but they didn't know to the extent So how did your experiences with narcissistic abuse affect your relationships, not only within the LGBTQ plus community, but like your other friends, your family members? And what advice do you have for others who may be facing similar challenges? Thank you. Um, I think that now I'm sort of quote unquote out about what happened in my last relationship. Um, It's really helped me to connect with other LGBT plus people who've had similar experiences. There are also a lot of straight allies who tune in, like I said, Um, And, you know, they can also get help from the podcast. But I've had LGBT people reach out to me and say that they've been lucky in their relationships, but have had narcissistic and or toxic parents or guardians or vice versa, that sort of thing. Um, So I did some episodes recently on narcissistic parents as well, um, if you are LGBT plus. So I think my advice for anyone facing similar challenges would be first to stay safe as much as you can. It's not always safe to outright confront the narcissist. Um, Believe me, I did it on a number of occasions and it did not end well. Um, They can be dangerous people um, quite often. And I think I feel like the longer you're with them, the more dangerous they get because the more boundaries they have climbed over. And they recognize, Um, okay, well, when I do that, they're not going to say anything. So let me see how, how, where I can, you know, inch up and like, Oh yeah, highlight more of their boundaries. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And it works on a physical level too. So when she would be physically violent, I would have bruises in places that people would not see. Mm. I think there was one time I had one on my face. Um, and yeah, and that was it. The rest of the time they were in places that that people wouldn't see. It's very calculated, they know exactly what they're doing. Oh, yeah. You know, or all of that. Um, so like I said, they can be dangerous. Um, so you mean if you're gonna confront them in any way or kind of call them on anything, then please just make sure you're not alone with them if you're gonna do something like that. Um and I think have safe people that you can turn to at any time. Friends, um, could be family members. Um, they need to be somewhat aware of your situation though. Like I said, my friends didn't know the full extent of it, but they knew it was a problem, a right. huge problem. Um, but they were safe people. You know, I know I could have called my friend and said, Hey, you know, I need to get out of here. Can I come to your house or whatever have you? And I would have been able to. Um, so that's always a good thing. So have a plan in a way, um, if you can, um, like I said, I kept journals all the way through and I hid them. Um, but this really helped me when I had no one else to talk to. Um, it was a way of validation to write it all down. Um, I'd say seek therapy. Um, I used to have to go and sit in a park in my car and talk to my therapist on Zoom because I couldn't do it at home because she would literally stand at the door and listen um, while I was in a therapy session. So I couldn't. Um, So I'd have to drive to the park, which is like 10 minutes away and sit and Zoom um, there with my therapist. I still see that same therapist um, today. Um, They've seen your they've seen your. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And every time I talk to her about, oh, you know, this is happening to me, that's happening to me. And I feel this and I feel that or I miss the person or I had a dream or whatever have you. She always pulls me back to and look at where you are today. And let's talk about the differences between Mm -hmm. then 
and now and do you remember like she does that for me constantly and and it's very helpful um i'd say if you're going to seek a therapist they'd need to be lgbt plus friendly um they'd need to be trauma informed so a lot of people might not have heard that phrase but this person does need to be trauma informed so somebody who knows how to uh, help you if you've been through some kind of trauma um, and they're informed in ways in which to do that. Um, you could also find out how much they know about narcissistic abuse trauma or B cluster personality disorders or anything like that. That would also be helpful, but just make sure that they're LGBT friendly and they're also trauma informed. I think they're the basics for you. Um I, I mean, I talk about this a lot on the podcast. So, you know, uh, the different ways in which you can kind of move on and, and all of that as well. Um, another important thing to remember is that nobody can tell you how long it's going to take you to heal. Um, mm. um, you know, I have really good friends. Um, they're the safe people I talk to you about. And they're like, but you were so great. Why don't you go on an online dating app? You just swipe right and all of that. And I'm like, okay, if you knew how long it took me, I mean, they kind of do, but they kind of don't because they're not in my body. But if you knew how long it had taken me to find this piece, you'd be really careful about the new people you invite into your life. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, it, particularly in an intimate um, relationship. And so just be careful with that. You know, you've been invalidated enough, uh, gaslit enough. Um, so just try and be patient and kind with yourself um, through don't the healing rush. process. Don't yes. rush through the healing process and don't feel yes. the rush into the next relationship. Like at the, I'm sure that at the end of your 13 year relationship, like, yes, it took you a long time to heal, to make peace with what happened. But when that day finally came, when you woke up one morning and you felt that peace, like, I'm sure like that felt that that was a feeling you didn't feel in such a long time but now oh, that yeah. you felt it was like oh my gosh I want to preserve this and the next person that comes that I may meet they need to like enhance this feeling I need to feel at peace not only like when I'm by myself but with them and if I don't feel that peace then that's not it I don't want that anymore yes that's exactly it that's exactly it. you're very spot on <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> it you know that you know you're just going to know that it, unless they enhance your life and you enhance theirs and it's and there's this there's not there's not there's this lack of fear like mm -hmm. that's the bottom line there's no fear in in there shouldn't be any fear in that relationship at all um having said all that though i think if it had been 100% awful then we wouldn't stay you know um and I think that they you they they do so they show you this nice side of them intermittently, um, so that you do stay. And they're the things that keep you off balance later on. You know, even when you do have that peace and even when you do have that tranquility and you respect it, every so often your subconscious will pop up because these things don't just disappear and the trauma's still there. You know, you're working through it, but it's still there. And and they do that. And so you remember those times at, at points of when, you, if you're feeling depressed or if you're having, you know, you've had some bad dreams about the person, you'll start to remember those good times. And what they're doing, what they used to do to you was called intermittent reinforcement. Um, yes. And actually, oh my gosh. Yes. yes. That's, that's yes. what a trauma bond is. Yes. 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 Yeah. Oh. I have a whole, um, I have a, actually a whole episode that I've already recorded on, on operant conditioning and intermittent reinforcement. Mm -hmm. um, and also I talk in there about the brain chemistry of somebody who has a gambling addiction mm -hmm. and the brain chemistry of somebody who's in a toxic relationship. And they are the same um, because it's intermittent reinforcement. You don't know when the win is going to come. You don't That's know how much it's going to be. I was just going to tell you, Sally, yeah. I actually, I wonder if we watched the same video because I literally saw the same video like that. Yeah. As well. oh yeah. It's, it's a very common thing that they do. And so that's how they keep you um, coming back. And, and so that's that intermittent reinforcement. And that's what makes it hard, you know, and, and you're okay. It's not an odd thing. It's actually a natural response because you're going to remember the good times because as memories fade, that's what we tend to do as a form of kind of self-preservation. Mm -hmm. Um, but once you start to heal, you can experience some of the most exhilarating times of your life. And, and it's never too late to do that. Exactly. And something that I want to add on is when it comes to that intermittent um, 
intermittent reinforcement. Like when I, I actually did a video on this on trauma bonding. So for you know our audience who may not be aware of this, in a trauma bond, what happens is there are like seven stages. The first stage, like Sally shared, is a love bombing stage. This is when you know they treat you so well. It's kind of like they study you in a sense, so they know what you want in a partner and they replicate this. They mm-hmm. behave the same exact way that they know that's what you want. And over a period of time, what happens is stage two is they gain your trust and you start getting hooked because you're like, this is something I've never experienced before. This person is amazing. It's like they know me. It's like they understand me. What happens in stage three is after that period of time, that's when they start to shift. They start criticizing you and they start devaluing you. And this starts very small. So it can be like what you shared in your story, asking, hey, what do you want to do? Them saying, and then your abuser saying, how do you not know what you want to do? And then they start physically using that violence. But that's like a shock to your system. And because they built that trust and because you're already hooked, what you start doing is you start giving them excuses like, oh, maybe they just had a bad day. Oh, they didn't really mean it like that. Maybe, you know, this happened, but I know they love me. That's right. Um, After they start devaluing you, what happens is they start gaslighting you. So now they, you know, start making you question your. Um, reality, your experiences when it came to your, you know, story with the journaling, making you feel small, where you took out, took your identity, your life experiences from your own home. You had to literally hide or throw away your journals. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you had yeah. to, you couldn't put pictures in the house. You had right. to make yourself so small. What happens then is because you idolize them and you put them on this pedestal, you're in this place now where you've resigned and you've submitted to them. Whatever they say now is what becomes your reality. When you're ugly, when they say you're ugly, you're ugly. When they say you're pretty, you're pretty. Now, over this period of time, and I'm sure like in this 13-year relationship, this is when you have a loss of sense of self. So now you feel like you're not okay on your own. You need them to feel good. You need what they say. And then- This is when the emotional addiction starts because now when you start withdrawing and now when your self-esteem and self-worth has deteriorated, they notice that, but they know, well, if I keep treating them like this or treating her like this, she's going to leave. So what what I'm going to do, I'm going to be nice to her again. I'm going to love bomb her again. And then the cycle Mm -hmm. gets started and you become emotionally addicted. So that's that's what a trauma bond is for those of us who are listening, whether you are, whether you are heterosexual, whether you're part of the LGBTQ plus community. It's the same. Sally is a voice for the LGBTQ plus community. And, you know, the story that you're sharing, it's very similar to heterosexual relationships. People like people tend to to, like minimize or, you know, say, oh, it's very different. But no, the tactics sharing with me are the mythology is the same. Yes. 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 It's all exactly. It's it's all the same that the the the. The disorder doesn't change um, depending on your gender or your sexual orientation or your identity in any way. The pathologies are the same. The brain is the same, has the same uh, stuff going on. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, Sally, you did you did actually answer a lot of the questions that I had regarding like the importance of your friends and family in playing in your healing journey. You talked a lot about um, embracing your authentic self, taking your space back, taking your power back, you know, even by starting very small, putting those pictures up, putting your journals on that bookshelf. And, you know, you did share with us how you faced a complex blend of self-doubt and shame and how you were able to combat those feelings. You know, you sought therapy, you reconnected with your friends that you were isolated from, and that's a very huge step. So my last question for you today is for other survivors who may be listening, and these are like all survivors, what resources, organizations, or strategies would you recommend to aid them in their own process of reclaiming pride and moving forward from from narcissistic abuse? All right. Well, um, I think I just, the first thing I start off with, um, the end we start from, Mm -hmm. to quote T.S. Eliot, is another quote um, from one of my heroes. That's Oscar Wilde. And he said, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. Um, So I think that's the first thing that you have to reclaim is yourself. I love that. Um, That self has been eroded. It's been tortured, squeezed, all the things that you were talking about earlier, Hannah, where you're literally made so small. Um, but you're not small. You're 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 a star. Like you know, you're you're made of carbon, and you're amazing. Um, yeah. So, I'd recommend. So, something that I um, I used to teach sessions on this, but breathing meditation. So, if you've never tried it before, um, just focusing on you. You can do it walking along. You can do it sitting in a chair. You can do it at work. But focusing on the breath and any thoughts that come to you, 
Um, you label them thinking that's a thought and it's thinking and you come back to concentrating on the breath coming in and out of your nose, mouth, however you're breathing. Um, so breathing meditation is really helpful. Those thoughts and worries and whatever you got are going to be there right afterwards. Don't worry. They're not going anywhere. Um, but to take that time for yourself um, is very calming and it can help you sort through thoughts, memories, trauma and things like that. Um, journaling, of course, we've talked about. Um, I would definitely recommend being in nature. Um, it's free. And um, it is very it much be, free. it's free. And, it, you know, someone said to me years ago once, you know, if you're under a lot of stress, go and look at something huge. Um, so sometimes I go look at a field or I'll go look at the ocean um, or go out and look at the night sky. I was just um, going to say that. Look at the stars in the sky. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, exactly. It's it's really it really does help um, just to it sounds like it wouldn't, but it actually does just to go and look at something. huge. Yes, it does. Yes, Yes. it does. And it also helps you be calmer about what's coming next. Um, You know what you might perceive is coming next. Rebuild your own space. Reflect on how you want it. Like I said, whether you live in a room, a house, an apartment, Mm-hmm. curate your own space how do you want that space to look what makes you feel comfortable you might hear the tapes of the person in the back of your mind going oh that looks stupid why are you doing that don't worry about that that's how they feel about themselves what do you want your space to look like and it's absolutely fine um there's also my podcast um which of yes, course shameless is. plug i would recommend um yes and also have a look at, um, I think, the website Psychology Today. I think that's where I found that's- my therapist. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, it's a good one because what you can do is you can put in search parameters like LGBT, um, trauma-informed, like you put those search parameters in there and it will kind of show up with therapists who have all of those different specialties. Um, so that might help you a little bit if you were going to seek out a therapist. Um, I definitely recommend the Victim Service Center of Orlando, um, where Hannah is and who I'm speaking to right now is a, a fantastic resource. I'd, it, and ironically, I'd actually worked with a lady from the Victim Service Center at Valencia while I was in that relationship. And oh, I that's didn't... amazing. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. Like at, at Valencia. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we were doing a, a safe employee training um, mm-hmm. and um, and it was so ironic because I was going through all that at home, but I was working with her and she's amazing. So um, there is the LGBT plus center in downtown Orlando. I would highly recommend that. Find your people, find your community. Um, also a, a group that I work for, CFC Arts, so Central Florida Community Arts. They do a yes. lot of, yes, they're amazing. They have a choir, they put on shows. Um, I used to teach a class on storytelling to people 60 and over. Um, There's so many things that they do. You could get involved with them and work with them. Um, You could go to one of their classes. They're awesome. Um, Reclaim your own look. Reclaim your your sense of humor. Reclaim your passion for what you do. Reclaim your friends. Reclaim your life. And reclaim the pride in who you are. And that would be my final piece of advice. That deserves a round of applause I wish I had an audience behind me that is absolutely amazing I mean and those are all practical tips practical strategies that anyone who's a survivor and anyone who is you know leaving this relationship is can find super helpful you know Sally thank you so much for sharing there's one thing that I want to share with you I don't know if this is like a part of your practice but you know you kind of inspired me but recently I want to say like two weeks ago something that's helped me in my like I guess my journey to self-discovery and finding my passion and reclaiming my peace of mind is journaling about like gratitude. So Mm. I actually like the people who are listening can't see this, but I literally have like this notebook where I will write down every morning, like Like, I literally have like, I'm grateful. And I talk about everything that I'm grateful for. And it's just, it's really helped me once again, like focus on what I have currently focusing on what you know is in my life that I have that Mm -hmm. other people may not even what other people may not have but things that are working for me that are behind the scenes that I don't even think about but it just helps me start my day in such this positive mindset so in addition to like the breathing I like to sit down just say like a prayer of gratitude and then write it down and then I go on with my day and it just Mm -hmm. it's helped boost my mood too I think and for a lot of people who are in their healing journey like that's helped me 
I journal at the end of every month. I like to kind of write a reflection. And even like in between the months when some days are really hectic and I feel like I'm spiraling, I'll write down like today. I'm, I will literally write today. I'm spiraling today. I'm struggling with this. Your journal is not like, like an essay. This is not something that you're showing your English teacher. Like this is literally like something for your thoughts and your perspective and where you're at. And you can make as many grammatical errors as you need to just write it down. It doesn't matter. But you know, Sally, I appreciate you. This has been one, honestly, probably one of my favorite podcasts that I've done in a while. Oh, thank you. It's been so seamless and it just flowed. And, you know, I appreciate you. And before, you know, I let you go, is there anything else that you want to share with our audience? I mean, you gave so much practical tips and strategies. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Um, hmm. Not to put you on the spot or anything. No, 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 you're fine. Um, I love the gratitude journaling too. And I love that you're specific as well. That's the key to gratitude journaling, isn't it? That you've got to be specific about what you're grateful for. Um, so that that's all I love that. Thank you for sharing that. That's yeah. Awesome. Um, so what would I say? Um that it's there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, even when you feel like you might not get out alive, um, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. It's worth it. Mm-hmm. You're worth it. Um it's worth pushing through and never like if you're there might be some people listening to this who are still in the situation right. um and you know you you are you always have a choice no matter what even if you're in a corner you always have a choice um you have a choice of whether to stay silent you have a choice of whether to speak you you always have a choice until you take your last breath and so I want to uh, just give that hope to people, I guess, um, who, whether they're survivors, whether they are still in those situationships, I don't call them relationships if I can possibly help it because they're not. Um, yeah, they're so, not. Yeah, they're not. It's a situationship. It, it really is. Yeah, it's it really relate is. means back and forth. There's no back and forth There's here. No and forth. There's only forth. Um, I love that. I'm going to start saying that. Oh, situationship for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that's it. I, just to give hope to people and say, you know, it's going to be all right and you can make it all right. Sally, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing, you know, your perspective, your experiences. And more importantly, thank you for, you know, helping everyone, the LGBTQ plus community, but also like, I'm sure you have so many listeners who are heterosexual as well, who find so much wisdom and inspiration like in your words and in your story and i thank you for that oh thank you so much for having me hannah thank you so much of course the vsc is a non-profit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in central florida The views and opinions expressed by podcast participants are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of the Victim Service Center of Central Florida. This podcast content is made available for informational and educational purposes, and the VSC does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy or completeness of the content. While we make every effort to ensure the information we are sharing is accurate, We welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear, and you are not alone.